This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Steve Taylor, author of Extraordinary Awakenings, When Trauma Leads to Transformation. In this book, Steve shares dozens of amazing stories of individuals who woke up to profound transformation following bereavement, deep depression, suicide attempts, addiction, military combat, imprisonment, and other intense encounters with mortality. Along with the amazing stories of shifters he shares throughout the book, Taylor uncovers the psychological processes that help explain these miraculous awakenings. Steve Taylor is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the author of several best-selling books on psychology and spirituality. He is the past chair of the Transpersonal Psychology section of the British Psychological Society. His other books include The Clear Light, Out of the Darkness, Back to Sanity, The Calm Center, The Leap, and Spiritual Science. Steve Taylor, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, thank you. It's great to have you. And um, we'll begin, as we do with uh, first-time guests on the show, um, with a question about uh, youth and childhood. And that is to invite you to cast your mind back to um, the, those periods of your life and ask if, um, in retrospect, um, there are any particular moments, any particular experiences that stand out as sort of precursors or harbingers of the direction your career would take that led you to write the book Extraordinary Awakenings, we'll get into later, um, and, and the rest of what you're up to. Not really, not so much during my early childhood. Um, I, I just remember, remember my early t- childhood as a time of uh, happiness and sort of carefree, uh, carefreeness. I just remember playing soccer all the time with my friends. And But w- one thing I do remember is that I used to love nature. We lived in a city, but there was a park nearby. And I always remember that I used to love staring at the trees and, um, you know, just staring at the grass and the sky. And so maybe that was a, that was a kind of harbinger of what I would later become interested in. You know, I think maybe back then I was having what you could call spiritual experiences, you know, feeling a sense of connection to nature, feeling a sense of the aliveness and the sentience of nature. And actually when I, when I was a teenager, um, I felt like I, I became a different person, almost as if there was a, a kind of new soul that entered my body when I was about 15 or 16. But I, I began to have um, what I now know, know to be spiritual experiences, probably about the age of 16 or 17. But at the time, I didn't understand them, and I thought it was maybe something wrong with me. You know, I thought I was a kind of a, you know, a kind of um, a tortured romantic poet, you know, who was never going to fit into society. Hmm. But um, yeah, so certainly, from, certainly from a teen, from being the being a teenager, I think my my direction in life was kind of established at that point. What were the what what, what were these spiritual experiences as a teenager? Again, they were connected to nature. I've always been a 
you know, felt a, felt a strong sense of connection to nature. So, and mostly for, for some strange reason, they would happen in the dark at night. So I used to love to, to wander through the park or sometimes I'd go back to my, my school in the evening and wander around the, the, the fields at the school. I was probably the only person who ever did that. <laughs> Went back to school in the evening. But um, yeah, I used to love wandering around, looking at the sky and at the trees. And sometimes the trees and the fields and the sky, everything would become sentient, almost as if it took on an extra dimension of reality. Everything would seem alive and beautiful. And everything would seem somehow in, in, interconnected, as if they were all part of the same network of being if you like they were all they were all expressions of something more fundamental obviously i didn't understand it at the time but these experiences were you know they were quite powerful and they gave me a sense of intense well-being a feeling of being kind of uplifted out of myself and taken out of um taken above rising above any difficulties in my life got it so you later became a uh uh uh, lecturer in, in psychology. <clears throat> and that's part of how you, as I understand it, how you came to write Extraordinary Awakenings and your other books. So maybe you could just sort of briefly chart that uh, uh, trajectory and um, we can go on from there. That was connected to these experiences which I had as a young man uh, because I wanted to understand the experiences. I wanted to understand why they arose, if they were connected to certain situations or certain states of mind, and also if they could become permanent, because I found it really frustrating that I'd have these moments of um, ecstasy, these feelings of connection and well-being, and then they faded away again, and I was back to my normal depressed and frustrated self. So I wanted to understand if it was possible to cultivate an ongoing state of this kind. So, um, yeah, I began to do research into spiritual experiences I began to collect examples of them, and that, that led me into the field of transpersonal psychology, which, is, and, and as you probably know, is kind of like a, a spiritual psychology. It's the study of spirituality from a psychological point of view. So that was my, my main motivation to study those kind of experiences. I'm curious if um, in parallel or along the way, did you get engaged in any sort of uh, formal spiritual practices or spiritual traditions? Yeah, yeah. You know, at the age of probably in my early 20s, I began to read about spirituality and that began, that enabled me to make sense of my own experiences. I thought, wow, hey, I'm not crazy after all. You know, other people are having these experiences. And um, so, yeah, once I started to read about spirituality, I was kind of on my way. I had a, a, a framework to make sense of my own experiences and I began to identify as a spiritual seeker, I guess. So, yeah, I began to explore um, things like Buddhism um yoga vedanta i was never you know i was never strongly affiliated with any tradition i never have been but i've always been an explorer i love to explore different traditions i feel especially connected to um indian traditions buddhism and but also particularly uh vedanta i love the upanishads for example and, and that kind of tradition i love, I love tantra mm. and um kashmiri shaivism and you know traditions like that right so, so were there any particular texts when you first started exploring through reading uh, that that really, besides the Upanishads, if that's one of them, um, yeah. early on, I mean, um, was there something that really grabbed you? The first book I read in this field was a, it was a, a it was an anthology of mystical experiences, 
by an English scholar of mysticism called F.C. Happold. I think it was just called Mysticism, a Study and an Authority. Mm. So it was great because it was, it was kind of like a sample of um, mystical writings from different texts around the world. And also collections, it was a collection of mystical experiences from different sources. There were, there were mystical experiences from uh, nature mystics, from romantic poets, but also from Christian mystics, uh, from Buddhist texts and so on. So that, that was, a, my, uh, you know, that was the first book I read where I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is what I'm really interested in. This, this helps me to make sense of my own experiences. So that book opened a, a big window for me. So that, that led me to the Upanishads. And, um, you know, I read Meister Eckhart, who was also in that book. I read Nature Mystics. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with an English nature mystic called R- Richard Jeffries. I don't know. I know, I know the, name, I know the name, but, I, but yeah. I've never read him. Yeah, he's great. He wrote a book called The Story of My Heart, which is kind of like a spiritual autobiography. So he, he was great as well. So that, yeah, that book was my kind of foundational text, I would say. Interesting. So as you, as you got into um, the psychological world, I'm curious if you found a kind of a tension between the methodologies and representations and what you might call the uh, expansiveness or the open, open-endedness open of like uh, spiritual sources. Since psychology, yeah. I mean, there's a range of psychology, obviously, and transpersonal psychology is a different animal than, uh, let's say, analytic psychology. That's true. But obviously, you have to engage with the whole field of psychology to an extent. So, yes, even now, I find some some areas of psychology quite difficult to, to stomach you know like I can't deal with statistics for example and sort of a quantitative research but I mean you know I think a psychology it's an examination of the literally of the human psyche but the problem with mainstream psychology is that it just stops with normal you know, with a normal human psyche it doesn't it doesn't examine anything beyond that so transpersonal psychology is great because it it examines potentials and experiences beyond the normal you could call it transnormal psychology, if you like. So I think normal psychology, you know, all, all really it aims to do is to create a, you know, a normally functioning human being who can get by in society and, you know, feel fairly contented with themselves. But obviously there's much, much more to life than that. So, you know, I think, you know, psychology, psychology is probably opening, opening up to these areas. There are some fields such as positive psychology, which is about, you know, which is derived from humanistic psychology yeah. and is all about human development. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is difficult to engage with some parts of psychology. I mean, I guess it's fair to say that it's even relatively recent that things like positive psychology came up since a lot of the tradition was focused on negative psychology just to get someone yeah, up to some baseline. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's right. But as you say, I guess even something like transpersonal starts to push those boundaries. And 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 that and that's we'll get into that kind of question. It's a kind of an interesting point of where the distinction between the psychological and the spiritual is, or whether the psychological is a modal way of studying is it a is an appropriate vehicle for actually talking about these kinds of states. And I think um, mm. you do a credit creditable uh, job in the book to really try to uh, unpack the spiritual state. And that's what we, we want to really get into here. Yeah. So maybe it's time. Shall we go? In? Yeah. So, so the book is extraordinary awakenings when trauma leads into transformation. And, uh, 
very interesting, very uh, uh, juicy material in there. Uh, uh, to frame it, let's first get some uh, terminology down. There's two concepts that you talk about in the book. One is um, uh, post-traumatic growth, and the other is transformation through tr uh, turmoil. And so maybe you could just uh, frame for us uh, what those two things mean to you in the book and how they may be the same or different. Post-traumatic growth is a term from mainstream psychology. I guess it's related to positive psychology. And it just refers to um, the positive long-term developments that can come from traumatic experiences. It's very common, actually. Recent research suggests that I think it's 47% of people experience some positive after effects of traumatic experiences. Sometimes it, take, sometimes it takes years for them to manifest themselves. But often people become more appreciative of their lives. They have more authentic, deeper relationships. And they have a new sense of purpose or meaning in their lives. So that's, you know, it is a surprisingly common phenomenon. And what I call transformation through turmoil, I guess you could call it a type of post-traumatic growth. And it's not as common as post-traumatic growth because it's much more dramatic and extreme than normal post-traumatic growth. Transformation through turmoil is when a person literally takes on a new identity in the midst of intense psychological turmoil. It often happens to people, well, often is probably the wrong word. It sometimes happens to people uh, after bereavement or after a diagnosis of cancer. It sometimes happens to people who are incarcerated, uh, soldiers on the battlefield, or, or well, sometimes it, it, sometimes it can be gradual. It can happen after many years of traumatic experiences on the battlefield or in prison. But um, yeah, it, it, it's, it usually happens in a sudden and dramatic moment of transformation. And it's almost as if the normal ego collapses and dissolves away. And a new self emerges um, in that process. It's almost as if, you know, the death of the ego creates a space within the psyche and a new self emerges into that space. Um, a spiritually awake, a naturally spiritually awakened self, which has been latent inside a person, almost as if it's been waiting for the opportunity to emerge. So um, your book goes through um, a series of chapters that address the, um, the sources of turmoil or trauma um, uh, in turn, as you, as you were saying, you know, soldiers, um, uh, people facing uh, uh, cancer or, or other uh, life um, threatening diseases, um, facing the death of a, a loved one, um, all kinds of, I mean, we, we, can, we can go through the list, but I'm, I guess I'm wondering how it is that this subject of transformation through turmoil came to your attention in the way that it did such that you would write this book. You mentioned throughout the book um, that in some of your previous books, there are relevant, there were relevant uh, personal histories that, um, that, if you hadn't yet written this book, you could have included in this book. But it sounds like you went um, to some considerable trouble to start collecting these um, personal histories and, and then rec recounting them in the book. 
So talk about how that how that came together for you, if you will, as a project uh, to do. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a conscious process. It was kind of accidental. Um, I think it began when I was collecting examples of temporary awakening experiences or spiritual experiences. And I found that um, I did a couple of uh, studies um, in the field of psychology about the, uh, the triggers of awakening experiences or the contexts in which they occurred. And I found that there were three main triggers of the experiences. And the most important trigger, the most frequent trigger, was psychological turmoil. So about a third of the experiences I collected were related to psychological turmoil, such as stress, depression, um, addiction, and so on. And I I was really surprised about that. I didn't expect, because I guess because my own experiences were always related to nature. I didn't expect um, psychological turmoil to be such a powerful factor in these experiences. The the other two factors, by the way, were nature, which I kind of expected, and um, uh, meditation or prayer, spiritual practice of some form, or reading spiritual literature. And then I began to realize, I began to find in my research that some people were not just talking about temporary awakening experiences. They were talking about a shift into an ongoing permanent state. So they would have an awakening experience, but it wouldn't fade away. It It would maybe become slightly less intense after a while, but it became embedded or ingrained in them as, as a permanent trait. So they became awakened, basically. And that was, that was, you know, after a long period of psychological turmoil or after a period of very intense psychological turmoil. So I began to realize that it was an actual phenomenon that people were actually undergoing a permanent transformation. Not everybody, but some people, probably a small proportion of them, maybe 10% of them, were reporting a permanent shift. And in some cases, it lasted for, you know, well, it, it, it just lasted for the rest of their lives. You know, I interviewed a, a man who was in his 90s and he'd undergone his shift at the age of 29. And it, so it had been ongoing for 60 or more years. Um, and that was, you know, there were the other long periods in which it's, it had sustained itself. So, yeah, I, I recognised that it was a real phenomenon, which I, I should study in more detail so i began to consciously look out for examples of it um i i did so i did some advertising on social media people wrote to me or people recommended cases that they were aware of so i began to collect case studies of this phenomenon which led ultimately led to the book i i noticed that on your website uh, uh you you seem to have a an invitation to um in fact post descriptions of this sort of thing so, so I take it from that that this is an ongoing project, as well as having produced this book. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I, I collect uh, examples of. <laughs> I sound like a collector, like a kind of specialist and like a stamp collector. But I, I collect examples of uh, temporary awakening experiences and also ongoing examples. So yeah, it's 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 just um, you know, I, I'm always doing research. So I guess you know, once I've collected a certain number of examples. I'll begin a research project. I'll begin to I'll begin to sort of formally research these examples and maybe make contact with the people again. So yeah, it is, it is an ongoing thing. So uh, uh, one one question, I guess, and this this is to frame this for listeners who haven't uh, read the book. When we talk about an awakening experience, uh, 
you you have a, a succinct list at the back of the book of what that uh, uh, what the common elements are. I'm wondering if you could kind of go through some of those. So so what are these? What are the hallmarks of this state, whether it's temporary or permanent, that uh, you're identifying? Well, they are quite similar, obviously, because it's essentially it's essentially the same state, but one is occurring on a on a temporary basis the other is occurring on a permanent basis so they're more or less the same although when a person has a permanent experience so there are certain kind of more long-term embedded traits which sometimes don't show up in temporary experiences but um i sometimes divide it into four areas so firstly well it, well let's say essentially first of all it's an expansion and intensification of awareness it's an expansion of awareness beyond a separate identity beyond a personal identity, an expansion of awareness into in several different areas. So the first area is perceptual uh, awareness. So the, there is an intensification of perceptual awareness, which means that the phenomenal world around us becomes more real, more beautiful. It's almost as if a veil of familiarity falls away and suddenly it's like, wow, you know, this is reality. This is the way things really are things just seem to catch our attention and we notice many more details than normal and colors seem brighter. Everything seems richer and more vivid. The world becomes fascinating. Even mundane things become fascinating and, you know, it becomes a pleasure just to, just to be because everything looks so interesting and real. Um, so it's like living in a kind of almost as if there's an extra dimension of reality, as if normal reality is a kind of like a faded photocopy. And now we're seeing the brilliant color of, of, you know, of the real world. So that's perceptual awareness. The second area is subjective awareness. There is an intensification of subjective awareness. And that refers to how we, we enter more deeply into our own being. And we become aware of depths, new depths of our being. And we, we become aware of potentials within ourselves. We become aware of energies within ourselves. So it's almost as if we, we dive below the surface of the ocean and suddenly we're aware of these, these depths, you know, these depths of stillness and harmony, um, which we don't normally have access to. And I guess at a certain point, you know, when you, when you journey deeply enough into your own being, it, it is no longer your own being, you know, it becomes everything. It becomes you, you, you touch into a fundamental oneness and you share your consciousness with everything else or, and everyone else. So the third area is intersubjective awareness. And that refers to our connection to other people and also to, to other living beings and to nature. And that means that we become more connected to other people. We become more empathic, more compassionate, more altruistic, almost as if we, we sort of share other people's identity. We connect with, with their being. We share their being. And, you know, there's a feeling of no longer being separate because we're part of other people's beings. We're part of the, the natural world around us. We connect more, more deeply with nature. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of participation that we're no longer just observers of the world who are separate. We are now participants we're part of the world uh, finally there's an expansion of conceptual awareness and that refers to our kind of our view of our conceptual view of reality and that means that we, we develop a more global 
kind of world-centric perspective. We no longer think in terms of group identity, in terms of a religious identity or, you know, a ethnic or national identity. We, we feel a sense of connection to all human beings, no matter, you know, how different they may super, superficially seem. And we're no longer so concerned with our personal problems or our personal issues. You know, we're more concerned with like global issues. That's why a lot of spiritually awakened people become, so I guess you'd call them social activists, socially activists, social activists. They want to make the world a better place. They want to, you know, contribute to the world in some way. They want to contribute to the human race. And that comes from the, from this wider sense of perspective that they have. So those are the four areas. Thanks. Thank you. So, so I have a question about, about that. Um, uh, my, uh, my spiritual teacher um, was, an, was a nanny to his spiritual teacher's kids. And he used to uh, say that um, some of the qualities, especially what was arising in particular for me, was the perceptual um, uh, description that you just that you just offered about how um, one's perception of the world um, has a vividness to it. And I'm wondering if if you would go along with the idea that very young children sort of automatically have that. And oh, yeah. and 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 how it is. I mean, so so I guess I guess then the question would be, how does that get lost such mm. that it can be refound through um, the uh, trauma leading to transformation? Yeah, that's a good point. I do think that young children naturally have this perception. There are actually some, you know, um, uh, very good books about childhood spiritual experiences. Spiritual experiences are very common in childhood. And mm -hmm. I think that's because, you know, children are naturally spiritual. So it's easy for them to sort of, you know, shift into a, a heightened state of consciousness because they're, they're partly there already. Their kind of baseline is higher than adults in terms of, um, you know, perceptual spiritual awareness. Um, yeah, so that, I think there's no doubt that children naturally have this, this intense perception. And that's because, I think it's partly because of familiarity, because they're living in a, I think the children are a bit like aliens who've been, who've landed on a different planets and like, wow, what is this strange place? All these strange phenomena. Who are these strange beings who live on the surface of this planet? So everything just seems so real because it's so unfamiliar and so new to them. But yeah, you're right. We do lose it as we become adults, um, unfortunately. And I think that's because, well, partly it's the result of social conditioning. I think partly our parents and our teachers, you know, they... Uh, they teach us that we should see the world in a more kind of pragmatic, intellectual way. I always remember years ago, I was in the countryside in England and there was a young child, I saw a young child, maybe six, five or six years old, staring at a cow in a field. And the child was completely transfixed by this cow. You could see that maybe, the, maybe he'd never seen a cow before, but the cow was this strange monster-like alien being to him with these giant eyes and he, he was just totally transfixed. And his father was walking maybe 10 meters ahead. And his father said, come on, it's just a cow. <laughs> and I thought, I said, what a terrible thing, what a terrible situation. I thought, the phrase, it's just a cow, is probably like the worst phrase you could ever utter to a child. But, well, you, but that you, shows you how our parents kind of, you know, they, they teach us to see the world in a different way. They teach us to ignore 
the beauty and strangeness of the world. But I think the main reason why we lose it is a natural process of psychological development. I think it's the development of the ego, basically. By the time we're, we're 12, 13, or maybe slightly older, obviously it's a gradual process, the ego starts to develop. We get a sense of separate identity. We start to hear an inner voice in our heads speaking to us, commenting on the world and on our behavior. And so this perceptual awareness just gets relegated to a different part of our psyche. It kind of, it's covered over basically. You can think about it in terms of energy, all of the energy that children use in perception is transferred over to the ego and it, start, it starts to be used in thinking instead. Yeah. So we lose that freshness of perception. Yeah, the, the, uh, I'm reminded of, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the writing of A.H. Holmes. Uh, yeah, to yeah. an extent. I mean, he, one of the things he did that kind of speaks to this uh, uh, discussion is that he put a lot of, he took the concept of essence, which uh, figures in Sufic and fourth way uh, uh, spiritual psychology and inserted it into, I think it's object relation theory, isn't that the developmental, the psychological discipline of the development of the ego. And so, so he wrote a series of books that are densely psychological in their language, except that it uh, speaks of the presence of essence and the occlusion of essence as the egoic formations uh, mm. develops. And then he speaks about uh, how one can develop a porous ego such that essence can start to uh, sort of Mm. Re, reassert in, 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 in terms of its, of the experience of the world. And so there's, 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 yeah. it's kind of a, it sounds like there's a similar kind of uh, model mm. that you're uh, speaking to there. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I like the term occlusion. That's definitely what happens. You know, the, the, the essential spiritual self is occluded by the development of the ego. So it, it, there are some transpersonal psychologists who see spiritual development as a kind of hierarchical process, like Ken Wilber. You know, he doesn't believe that children can have genuine spiritual experiences because they're, they're at a pre-rational level. And he believes that spirituality is essentially transrational. So, you know, it's a step-by-step hierarchical process. But I don't believe that. I think, you know, spiritual development is a bit like a spiral. In a sense, you return to the childhood state. You recapture that childhood essence that spiritual essence but you combine that with the the abstract intelligence the intellectual practical abilities that the adult ego gives us so there's a kind of like an integration of childhood spirituality and an adult practical intelligence i think that is what genuine spiritual awakening is so well that's that's interesting uh, you know my um Referring again to my, to, to my own uh, teacher, um, he used to describe what, it, what you're uh, talking about as uh, innocence with knowledge, as opposed to mm. just childhood innocence. And, um, and so um, that leads me to, to ask if, if how you understand the word spirituality, what it means, what it points to, um, that is something that is ever present, but not noticed by many adults in Western society, at least. Is that a fair statement? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that phrase, uh, innocence with knowledge. You could possibly talk about immature spirituality and mature spirituality. 
but um yeah the word spirituality is quite tricky and it's, it's very difficult to define but uh well, I, I know it's an interesting terms. question <laughs> that's Sorry? why it's an interesting that's why it's an yeah. interesting question <laughs> yeah but i i think in terms of um you know as i've already described in terms of expansion and intensification connection if i if i had to use two words to describe spirituality i would say expansion and connection you know connection across many different levels connection to other beings connection to nature connection to our own being connection to the whole universe and an expansion in a similar way expansion across many different dimensions it's about you know expanding beyond the, the disconnected separate self into wider dimensions of reality okay got it thank you yeah this uh going back to this question of um integration or uh, uh innocence with uh knowledge or innocence with wisdom the there is a notion of um of in analytic psychology i think of uh, uh conceptual access accessibility so we can have experiences there's plenty of experiences we have that we can't conceptually access um mm. there's a very simple example that uh, I, I read in a book by a guy named uh, Thomas Metzinger that talks about if you see a palette of colors, if I put a palette of, let's say, different shades of yellow in front of you, you can distinguish all the different colors very easily. But then if I put those same colors in front of you one by one, you don't know which one is which. Hmm. And and so there's a way in which the you know the wisdom that we're talking about in some respects is having being able to distinguish the states and even distinguish the state of our whole organism our body our heart our mind in relationship to that state such that um we know what they are when they come up but also we have the possibility of knowing how to cultivate or to hold those mm. states or invite those states back more directly yeah one thing i found in my research is that you know it's quite common for people to have spiritual experiences without knowing anything about spirituality right it's quite common for people to undergo spiritual awakening without knowing anything about spirituality and you know they can have the experience without having a context to make sense of the experience um, but but there is a period of um there is often a period of confusion and mm -hmm. um, there needs to be a period of integration. People do need to establish a, a framework to make sense of the experience. And that's mainly because we live in a culture where any abnormal states of consciousness are seen as pathology. You know, they're seen right. as uh, psychosis. So people sometimes think they've gone mad. There was one guy who I interviewed uh, for the book and he, he underwent a transformation while he was in prison in Africa in very kind of um in you know horrific circumstances and in a state of great deprivation but um so he he underwent you know a transformational experience in prison but he, he didn't know anything about spirituality so when he came out of prison came back to europe he you know he, he tried to explore what had happened to him and he actually bought he bought a, a book of psychiatric disorders a textbook of psychiatric psychiatric disorders he was trying to locate his own condition am i schizophrenic am i bipolar but luckily he didn't find it so he thought wow maybe i'm not psychotic 
And then he read a book about spirituality, but he found a book about spirituality by chance. And he thought, ah, this is me. And then things began, began to make sense. And he began to explore all the spiritual books and spiritual mm. practices. Yeah, so you then have he a, had a framework to make sense of it. Yeah, you have a so number of, you know. yeah, you have a number of stories like that in the book where, where someone has an experience and they don't really, I mean, they have the objective elements of the experience, but then they, it's only when they run across a book like uh, the power of now or some, or a, a, or a more traditional spiritual text that suddenly like, it's like they recognize themselves in that. And that, and that, that I thought that was an interesting piece because um, it speaks to the importance of the conversation about spiritual states in general and spiritual possibilities in general in this world. That's right. I also found that some people could actually repress the experiences. I spoke to a number of people who had experiences when they were very young, you know, for example, 50 or 16 years old. And because the experience made so little sense to them, because it conflicted so, so much with their view of reality, they would kind of, you know, they'd, they'd sort of forget about it. They'd repress it and they'd just turn their attention to other things. Um, but it, but it always came back eventually. Even if it took years, it would always come back eventually. They would always sort of, you know, you can only you can only repress things for a certain amount of time. They always come back, and the more you repress them, the stronger they become at an unconscious level. So they would always sort of force their way through eventually. So there would always be a transformation, even if it was delayed for a number of years. So, um, so getting in, into the specifics, your first uh, a couple of. Uh, chapters um um well the first the first chapter is is about um peace in the midst of war um and then you go on to um freedom in prison in two chapters of two chapters about that tell us why you started with those particular case histories from 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 each of those because you go on to a, a variety of other contexts wherein people experience trauma that leads to transformation why did you start there i thought they they provided the most striking and kind of paradoxical examples of spiritual awakening in the midst of suffering because nobody nobody would you know normally associate war with spiritual awakening warfare is uh, the most evil brutal practice which human beings can engage in or one of them and so it's a complete opposite to spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening is about bliss and peace and, you know, empathy and altruism. And warfare is the opposite of all of those things. So, yeah, I thought it was very striking. And also I did collect a lot of examples, uh, particularly of uh, awakenings in prison. But what I found with warfare is that I was sent quite a lot of, a lot of examples of temporary spiritual experiences in the context of warfare. So I wanted to share some of those. Um, you know, I think because warfare is such a, a stressful experience and also it involves encountering mortality. It involves you know, witnessing death, you know, being exposed to the, the possibility of dying, you know, in multiple different contexts. So it is, it is a, quite a, a powerful source of spiritual experiences. I always think that encountering death is a powerful source of spiritual experience. But I did, I did also find some examples of permanent spiritual awakening in warfare. And that usually happened over a number of years. Most of the cases in the book were quite sudden and dramatic. But in warfare, 
um, it, there seems to be a tendency towards gradual spiritual awakening caused by long periods of, of trauma. And prison is similar. You know, I guess prison is a, a place of desperation and aggression and turbulence. So you wouldn't normally associate it with spiritual awakening, but it is a very quite a fertile place for for spiritual development and spiritual awakening. So again, I was sent so many examples of uh, uh, both spiritual experiences and permanent spiritual awakenings, which occurred in the context of prison. Got it. So um, uh, one of the things that um, seems common here and and in the other contexts, although, although manifesting differently, is is the experience of extreme stress. Mm. So so I'm wondering if there's a if if you see the principle of stresses to your understanding of how the ego works, is that how these breakthroughs um, tend to manifest? At least in the cases that you that that you uh, outline in the book. Partly, it can happen. Well, I call it ego dissolution. And ego dissolution can happen in two ways. It can be a gradual process in which the ego is slowly worn away, uh, almost as if you know it's like a, I sometimes compare it to a building or a house. You know, if you take if you take away a certain number of bricks from a house, it will just collapse. And the ego is the same. You know, if you take away a certain number of psychological attachments, which which you know help to form the ego which strengthen and reinforce the ego. If you take all of those away, then the ego will eventually collapse. And that can be a gradual process. Addiction is a good example. Addiction is a, a long process in which your ego slowly breaks down because everything which gives you a sense of identity is slowly removed. You know, if you're in the process of addiction, slowly, you know, you, you lose your friendships because people no longer trust you. You lose your possessions you lose your role in society, your status, you lose your hopes for the future. Everything is slowly taken away. Um, and it's a process of ego dissolution, which can sometimes lead to a spiritual awakening when the ego is completely destroyed. But it can also happen quite suddenly. Um, again, you know, going back to the metaphor of a house, it can be like an earthquake, which just collapses, in which the house suddenly collapses in one, you know, in one, in one, um, you know, one sudden event. And that I think stress, you know, when people go through periods of very intense stress, then at a certain point, the ego can just break down, just like an earthquake, a house collapsing in an earthquake. It just can't withstand the pressure anymore. You know, and the only, you know, the only thing it can do is just break down. There's no other option open. You know, the ego, you can't sustain the ego anymore. You can't reinforce it. You can't support it in any way. It just collapses. And, and, and again, that can lead to a spiritual awakening. Well, that leads me to question then, just what is the ego? Obviously, it's not a house. Um, but, um, but I mean, uh, uh, my, my personal gloss would be that it's a, it's a series of habits that seem to be effective in getting us through hmm. more or less um most of the moments maybe not happy happily um but at least we survive um yeah so 
if I translate that to to the to the um, uh, framework that you're offering with re with regard to a, a dissolution, then um, then habits become demonstrably ineffective at getting mm -hmm. us through moment to moment. Is that, I mean, would you at least posit that that's a possible way to see how the ego, how ego dissolution would work? To an extent, I think that's partially true, but I think the ego is more than just habits. I think it consists of what I call psychological attachments. I think the ego is basically um, an artificial and superficial sense of personal identity. Um, and one of its problems is that it, it exists in separateness. It exists within our own mind-body complex in separation to the rest of the world. So it feels a basic sense of insecurity and fragility. So it needs to strengthen itself. And it does that by collecting psychological attachments. And by that, I mean things like, um, you know, identity labels, like I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a Democrat or whatever. I'm English, I'm American. There are just identity labels that give us a sense of identity. Mm -hmm. um, and also um, things like ambitions for the future, um, status, achievements, beliefs about the world, possessions, obviously, as well, relationships. Sometimes um, our relationships are based on attachment, in that sense, reinforcing our ego. So the ego collects all of these attachments and they, they strengthen it. And eventually the ego, you know, you can feel quite good with a, a strong ego. You can feel, oh, yeah, I'm in control of my life. I know, I know what's going on. I've got it all worked out. You know, I can function well in society, but it, it, it's always a you know, superficial and artificial sense of identity. And as we said before, it always occludes our real essential spiritual self. Um, so that's, that's how I would define the ego. So, the, um, so spiritual awakening often occurs when these psychological attachments are broken down. I think of these attachments as the building blocks of the ego, but I, but I agree. I think habits are part of that too, you know, I mean, it is, isn't it a habit to believe a certain thing, to believe I'm a Democrat, to believe I'm a, um, an Englishman, yeah. that sort of thing? I think so. I think it becomes a habit. Yeah, it's a bit like smoking. Um, you know, I, I used to smoke cigarettes many years ago, and I think I started smoking cigarettes because I felt that I was, I was quite insecure and I needed something to cling to. Um, so they, you know, they, they fulfilled a psychological need. Mm -hmm. But later on, um, especially when I started to meditate and started to engage in spiritual practice, that psychological need was no longer there. But I still had the habit. You know, I still had to deal with the habit. So it took me a while to get rid of the habit, even though the psychological need was no longer there. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you're both saying you're two halves of the same thing and that the habit, a habit, a psychological habit has, or a mental habit has a, an effective strength, which is what you're calling the attachment. And I, both are present to me. I mean, you can, have, I can be a demo, I can say I'm a Democrat. And if I, I can have very little effective strength on that, or I can have a lot of effective strength on that, in which case, uh, I get very riled up every time I, uh, hear a conservative talk radio host or something like that. And, yeah. and, uh, the a question I have, you know, one of the, one of the 
models uh, our own teacher used to say, and I, I certainly found it too in my experience, is that the ego tends to shut down under stress. And mm. I, have, I have, you know, even fairly mundane examples of this where I was in a, uh, I, I'd been doing spiritual practice and I was in a car accident, head-on collision. Uh, fortunately, no one was hurt in it, but uh, I was quite shaken and I was in a altered state where my ego was shut down, but I did have some level of functioning. But what I noticed was the other people who, even people who stopped, but the other person in the the other car, uh, they were like almost, they they were like, they couldn't really function that well. Um, hmm. Because it's like our egos were shut down because of the stress of the situation. Yeah. And that does suggest something. You, you mentioned this in the book, and uh, it's an interesting question to me is lots of people experience stress lots of people experience trauma why why only a small number of these people have these transformational experiences i presume that there's probably a wider set that has temporary transformation and then there's a smaller set still further that have this kind of permanent transformation what mm. is it what is it about their state of being that gives rise to a uh, a permanent uh, phase change, as it were, in the face of uh, uh, an intense stress that might, for for a moment or for a period of time, shut the ego down. Yeah, mm, it's interesting your experience with in the uh, with the car crash. Did, did you find that time slowed down? By the way, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah time was it was sort of a timeless state for. I mean, there were certain practical things like uh, <clears throat> my car door didn't work, but the side the driver's side window was completely uh, uh, fractured. So I had the presence to think I probably should climb out of the car just in case. Mm. And so I did. And uh, but it was it, it was a kind of a timeless state, but I still had some ability to function in that state. So uh, someone mm. that I. I was on a, I was driving home from work. So someone, uh, stopped and, uh, that I worked with. And so I could ask her to, this was before cell phones. So I could ask her to stop, you know, uh, up the street and, uh, make a call to, uh, uh, Robin, our teacher to, you know, come get me. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, so I had, I had that level, I had some level of functioning, but, what I was struck at was how much everyone else in, in the situation until, until like the uh, first responders showed up uh, uh, just seemed to be in a daze. Yeah. It was, it was yeah, it was just, it was a, um, a striking, it, 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 I, I thought of that when I was reading some of the material in the book, because the uh, stress does do something. Uh, to our normal functioning of our ego and um, yeah 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 i think in those experiences you know it, it, it's like a sudden shift into an altered state of consciousness the accident just shifts you suddenly it jolts yeah. you into an altered state of consciousness a, a non like a kind of transegoic state of consciousness and it's interesting about time because uh, that kind of, that experience kind of shows that time is a function of the ego you know kind of outside the ego time i'm not sure if you would say that time doesn't exist but it sort of behaves in a different way it's often very slow 
I think in normal consciousness, we experience this very fast flowing linear time, but, but in, in altered states, time often slows down drastically or, or even appears not to exist altogether. Yeah. I think some of the, um, uh, uh, cases that you report describe time slowing down in the case of accidents where uh, mm, mm. a car is turning over and over and the person is just like perfectly present to that. I mean, I yeah. remember, I remember when I was a kid and I was swinging on a swing set and uh, uh, fell off and I still to this day, even though that was probably uh, 40 years ago, uh, almost uh, well, more than 40 years ago, I remember the, slowness of time in that you mm. know and and the sort of clarity of awareness before i hit the ground and sort of return to my you know normal state feeling sorry for myself and things like that for having had this accident but there was this mm. transition that was very much uh precisely what some of the folks in the uh, that you report were describing in those kinds of situations yeah that's right but but to go back to your question yeah, it's a bit of a puzzle that, um, I mean, everybody goes through traumatic experiences at some point, often at several points in our lives. You know, we all experience bereavement and, um, you know, we're all going to face death. We probably all do face death at some point in our lives before we actually die. But but not many people go through this radical spiritual transformation. So I think there are, there are some reasons why some people experience it whilst others don't. But I think the main reason which, which I identified was simply what I call readiness. Some people seem to be ready for this transformation. There seems to be a latent, spiritually awakened self inside them, which is ready. It's, it's fully formed as a structure. And it's just waiting for the opportunity to emerge. Almost like a, you know, like a, a chick which is ready to hatch. It's just fully formed, just waiting for the right moment to to emerge, to break through the egg. But but in other people, that maybe there wasn't, you know, this the same quality of readiness. Maybe their spiritually awakened self is not fully established and integrated as a structure, you know, so that when they go through trauma, they don't experience this this transformation. But also, uh, I found that things like acknowledgement and acceptance were very important. You know, when you go through it, when you go through a traumatic experience, you have to be able to acknowledge the reality and the enormity of the predicament. And you also have to accept it. You have to open yourself to it, surrender or let go. So if, if you, you know, if you have that experience and you have an attitude of resistance, if you struggle against it, if you feel in conflict with it, and also if you you know, distract or divert yourself from it, then you won't experience transformation. So in particular, acceptance is very important. Yeah, the, uh, um, I, I mean, I, 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 uh, I'm perfectly in tune with you here. And, um, and, and one of the things that, uh, that formal spiritual practice can offer people is is a way to practice, I guess, the sort of acceptance that you're that you're saying is a really a requirement, if not even a prerequisite, for the 
sudden transformations that you that's that a lot of your case histories um delineate um and that's and that is then we're th we're then back to the mystery of how some people may be as you say ready um in some for 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 unknown reasons perhaps but um um, it would be hard to predict who will be who will be able ahead of time to be able to use the stress or the trauma um, in this um, in this way no longer to grasp after the egoic supports or, or um, attachments that you are that you point to. Does mm. that sound right? That sounds right. Yeah, de definitely. Yeah, it is difficult to say. I mean, as I say, a lot of people I spoke to knew nothing about spirituality. And, um, you know, they were the kind of people who, in, in some ways, that you you call them, um, you know, manipulative, corrupt, nasty people in some ways. So they would never expect to undergo this experience. You know, um, particularly... You know, um, in the case of addiction, well, I mean, addiction in itself can, you know, have a terrible effect on people's character. But there were there were there were often people with very low self esteem who were aware that they were behaving in a very in a very, you know, bad way. And maybe that was a factor in it. That I think their kind of their self hatred, um, would increase their their sense of dissatisfaction, and increase their general psychological turmoil. But, um, you know, it, 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 it is a kind of, it's a mystery to some extent. You know, it's difficult to identify who will have this experience. Maybe it is just to do with, you know, what's happening unconsciously. Maybe some people do have a, a, a latent spiritually awakened self, which is just waiting to emerge and which is covered over by the ego self, whereas other people don't. But otherwise, it's quite difficult to identify. Yeah, the, uh, one of the things I uh, came up in relationship uh, you didn't. You don't mention this in the book, but um, in particularly contemporary spiritual practice and in, in various traditions, this comes up in um, a, a lot in the U.S. and uh, Europe. Is this the controversy of crazy wisdom teachers? Mm. And and in the traditional <laughs> canon of spiritual practice, uh, there's all these stories. You see this in the Zen, Zen tradition, in particular, of teachers who can recognize uh, when someone is sort of ripe, as it were, and deliver sometimes a very traumatic shock to that person, which then is an occasion for uh, an awakening. And, and so there's a, there's a, in spiritual canon, there's a, uh, there's certainly a lore that describes these same sorts of phenomena. It's just that the, presumably the teacher is has a skillful means to recognize when someone is ready and what the nature of the shock mm -hmm. should be. Whereas I think the controversies come up in the modern world when teachers take a shotgun approach of like delivering um, uh, the same shock to a whole bunch of people and some small percentage get the value of it and uh, yeah. count the benefits of the teacher. And then there's a bunch of people who are sort of broken by the wayside um, and yeah but it kind of follows into this model like understanding better what that what this transition is uh would allow a greater precision for 
how we understand and how that kind of shock can be delivered intentionally in order to support someone in a transformation. Yeah, I think the uh, the old Zen teachers were very aware of this. You know, they were very aware of the power of shock. You know, we were talking about jolting in terms of accidents. Yeah, I think it's that jolt that can be really important, just jolting you out of your normal egoic consciousness. So I guess that, that can happen through an accident, a car accident, through a period of in, intense stress or, you know, being shocked by somebody's behavior. Um, but, you know, the important thing is just to be jolted out of your normal state. I think the normal human state, it, it can become so, you know, it can become so, you know, full of familiarity and so inert, you know, I think human, normal human consciousness can become, so I think, you know, as we get older, it becomes more familiarized and more inert and, it, we, you know, it cuts us off more from the spiritual essence within us and the spirituality of the world outside us. So you need it. Sometimes you need a, a giant shock to shake you out of your normal consciousness. Well, I mean, in the the last three chapters of the book, you 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 get into a discussion of uh, the first first of those three chapters. I'm referring to is explaining transformation through turmoil, and then and then there's learning from transformation through turmoil. So, um, and one of the, <clears throat> one of the things you write, there's a separate section, um, within that, uh, explaining transformation chapter called new self comma, not no self, new self comma, not no self. And you write the first uh, sentence here is in the leap, uh, another book that you previously had written. I argued against the notion that spiritual awakening is a state of no self, as some spiritual teachers and traditions suggest. Strictly speaking, wakefulness is a state of new self, a fact that has been borne out by the findings of this book. So I want to I want to dig into that a little bit because it's it's a very interesting claim. But uh, um, um, I mean, I think the discussion we've had already suggests why you would frame it that way. Although you, you, um, the, you know, when, when the house collapses, um, as you were just discussing, which by the way, is the analogy you use immediately after the passage. I just, I just read mm -hmm. from the analogy of a, of a house suddenly collapsing or being dismantled slowly. Um, I'm wondering if there aren't, if, if spiritual awakening may have more species than than a single species, more different manifestations than a single manifestation. I mean, you do make a convincing case from the case histories throughout this book for for a a relative um, common yeah so many common elements. Um, um, among the testimonies that you collect about how the experience of that, their house collapsing um, or even suddenly just simply disappearing, poof, like magic, um, mm -hmm. and, and the new self emerging that you, that, that, that you suggest. But I'm wondering if 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 that if it necessarily is true that some of the spiritual transformations we read of 
in, in some of the traditional literature are necessarily of the same character as the ones mm. that you are describing. Does it, do you understand the question I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. Could you give me an example? What kind of transformations are you thinking of? Whose transformations are you thinking of? Oh, well, um, the, I guess there would be uh, Ramana Maharshi. There would be St. Francis. The mm. Buddha is would be the classic example. Yeah. Of course, we have to rely on texts that are 2,500 years old here and traditions. But nevertheless, the Buddha certainly didn't seem to... Um, have a terrible life. He was supposedly 29 years oh, old, no. but, but he was a, mm. and a, and a prince, uh, mm. with a beautiful wife, uh, uh, and a son, etc. But he was dissatisfied with, um, with features of his life that didn't seem to fit the experiences that he saw other people have around him. Hmm. Hmm. The experience of someone ill, the experience of of death, etc. So, hmm. um, and then he he went out and subjected himself to incredible stress stresses um, until um, he was so emaciated um, that he decided to allow himself to be given food by a milkmaid. I think I think it is, mm-hmm. and. Um, and that, and then, from the meditation that that nourishment provided, um, he saw the the morning star in the sky, and his um, transformation was complete. Mm. Um, we are told. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. quite a lovely, lovely, lovely story, right? Mm. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering if if that transformation is necessarily the same. I mean, I could argue that St. Francis would fit right into your chapter on, on soldiers mm-hmm. and, their, and their transformation because he went to war, he was uh, injured or, and or psychologically injured, and then awakened with a, a whole new relationship, especially with nature. Mm-hmm. So I think, I guess what I'm, what I'm, what I'm asking is, I'm wondering if there's a spectrum of awakenings. Oh yeah. As as opposed mm. to as opposed to just the the model of a new self. Yeah, I, I agree with you to a large extent. In fact, in in my book, The Leap, which mm-hmm. was just mentioned in that passage. Yes. Um I suggest that spiritual awakening can occur in three ways. Mm. The first is when it's entirely natural when somebody just is spiritually awakened you know that's just their normal state maybe they don't lose the natural spiritual awakening of childhood and it becomes intensified as they become adults mm-hmm. so for some reasons that we're not aware of those people are just naturally awakened they don't need to to meditate or to go through intense turmoil because they're already awakened i think those people often become poets or um, perhaps social activists maybe artists Okay. And the second way in which it can occur is when it's very gradual over a long period of spiritual practice or following a spiritual path. So that, okay. that's probably the most common way in which it occurs, you know, very gradually through years of devotion or practice or following a certain practice or path. Okay. And, and the third way is when it happens suddenly and dramatically. 
and that's when it's usually connected to to intense turmoil not always i think sudden spiritual awakening can occur without turmoil but usually it does occur in the midst of psychological turmoil so um you know it's like there are different different routes to the same i wouldn't say the same destination but to the same kind of landscape of spiritual experience you know i, I think of spirit, spirituality as this giant landscape of more intense expansive experience hmm, you okay. can reach the landscape from many different routes and you can explore it in many different ways and you can also interpret it in many different ways i think you know if you talk about different traditions like buddhism or taoism or christian mysticism i think they're, they're dealing with the same essential landscape but obviously they're exploring and interpreting it in different ways so you know i think if you compare the experiences of um, Buddhist monks and Christian mystics, to some extent, to, to a large extent, they're quite similar. You know, they're exploring the same deep states of consciousness, same higher states of consciousness. But obviously, they they describe them and they conceptualize them in different ways. So they seem they seem different if you you know we look at them superficially. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. There are many different routes to the same landscape of higher human experience but i I think the the question of new self and no self yeah that's um you know i guess that i'm thinking in terms of there are some non-duality teachers who say you know there's nobody there you you just you just need to realize that you are nothing Mm -hmm. there's just experience passing through your consciousness there's nothing there i I think that's a very that's a kind of gross simplification which can Mm. be quite you know that can also be quite destructive you know a lot of people have psychological issues which they need to work through before they become awakened so it's no good to just tell people yeah it's all an illusion yourself is an illusion all the issues that you have are illusions you can just you know push them to one side and realize that you are nothing that's very counterproductive and unhelpful so and, and also i've done a lot of research and reading about the differences between psychosis and spiritual awakening hmm. and there are there are some similarities you know especially when people have very explosive and dramatic spiritual awakenings they can have seemingly psychotic type symptoms and it's easy it's easy to misdiagnose somebody um who's had a spiritual awakening as um suffering from psychosis or schizophrenia that does happen quite a lot unfortunately hmm. but I, th- I think the essential difference between spiritual awakening and psychosis in, is that in psychosis, the ego just breaks down and nothing replaces it. There's just like a fragmentation of the ego with no kind of central structure of identity, no stable psych- psychological functions. But in spiritual awakening, there is the same breakdown of the ego, but something replaces it, a new structure replaces it, a new kind of identity structure. It's a completely different identity and it operates in a completely different way is a very subtle kind of identity which isn't separate but it's still it's still got some psychological structures i really uh really found helpful your uh, metaphor of a landscape of awakening as a landscape uh, because um, that metaphor helps me grasp how different the different ways that people approach uh, awakening or that it occurs for them 
or manifests as they in their experience um, would be like the difference between I don't know the river valley and the and the mountaintop, the uh, fertile fields and the desert. So I really appreciated your your metaphor of the landscape. That helps me understand how a variety of different people with different experiences, different capacities and propensities can experience awakening differently, even though you um, also point to to the commonalities. But because our time is limited, I want to I want to jump to um, something that um, is in your next to last chapter, the entitled learning from transformation through turmoil. In other words, you're trying to speak to readers who have not and, and may not necessarily expect to have a, a similar kind of experience as to the all, all the really juicy case histories in this book, right? So you identify three um, uh, ways in which you can do this. Embracing challenge, consciously detaching, and contemplating death. This last one, by the way, is really interesting. You bring up Gurdjieff, uh, someone that, whose work I'm very familiar with, but also um, uh, Buddhism, also um, a way there. But if you could talk about those three ways a little bit, I think that would be helpful to listeners and hopefully um, uh, hmm. illustrate how the book can be useful um, personally to that. The first one is simply, um, you know, as we said before, we all go through turmoil and trauma at some point in our lives. So, you know, we know that turmoil and trauma have a lot of transformational potential. So it's a question of how can we get access to that transformational potential? So in terms of, we, you know, we can follow the examples of the people in the book who underwent transformation through acknowledgement and acceptance of their predicaments by practicing the same thing. You know, so when we go through challenges and crises, we have to acknowledge the full enormity, the full reality of them. We have to we have to be willing to explore our own emotions and our own thoughts in relation to those challenges. It's a question of really going inside and exploring our own subjective experience, which is not you know which is quite foreign to a lot of people because a lot of people just live ex- live externally in activity and entertainment and distraction. But you have to be willing to go inside yourself and explore and acknowledge your own psychological turmoil. Uh, and you have to be willing to accept your predicament. Acceptance is, you know, everybody knows it's one of the most important spiritual qualities. I think it's so important because it breaks down, you know, the conflicts that we have with our experiences. It breaks down the duality between us and the reality of our lives. It creates a state of openness and oneness towards our experiences. So, you know, when, when you enter into a mode of acceptance, it's as if a barrier falls away and you're suddenly one with your experience and that's very powerful and that will enable you to to access the transformational potential of crises and i guess it's a question of letting go you have to be willing to let go you have to be willing to trust in the process and you have to allow your ego to slowly be dismantled um so the second one um (laughs) remind me of what was the second one Consciously detaching oh, based, uh, about the ego uh, slowly um, dissolving, I guess. That's right. Yeah. That, that, as I said before, that's one of the most important elements of the transformation. It's a process of 
you know, the dissolution of psychological, uh, psychological attachments leading to the dissolution of the ego. And again, this is something which all spiritual traditions focus on. And they're all aware of the importance of detachment, you know, detachment from ambitions, from possessions, from beliefs and concepts and so forth. So that's something that we can easily consciously practice in our lives. And I think a large part of the process is simply becoming aware of your attachments. And, you know, some some attachments are very obvious, like addictions are a very obvious form of attachments, uh, a, a, a very obvious form of attachment because it's such a strong physical form of attachment. But other attachments can be very subtle, you know, the, the attachment to the future, for example, you know, attachment to ambitions and goals in the future, the attachment to possessions. Again, that's quite an obvious one, you know, materialism and consumerism. Um, but, you know, once you're aware of your attachments, then you're partially free of them because you no longer invest uh, so much energy in them. And actually going back to what you mentioned before about habits i think a lot of attachments are simply habits you know maybe we needed them at some point but they become once they become habits they take they take on an extra level of impetus and they kind of take over our being so so to an extent it's simply a question of getting rid of the habit and realizing that you don't need the attachment you know you you can actually function very well without it and you know i think once you detach yourself from a, a sufficient number of external things, you realize that you do have this incredible source of well-being and wholeness within your own being. And that's when you realize that you don't need the attachments and that's when you become free of them. So yeah, we can certainly practice that. And the third one, which I do remember, uh, which is contemplating death, that's um, incredibly important. And again, it's something which all spiritual traditions focus on, especially Buddhism. Yeah. You've, you've heard about the cemetery meditations in, in Buddhism. And I think even Christianity is, um, you know, got a quite str strong theme of death awareness in it. But a lot of the transformations I describe in the book, you know, um, becoming aware of the reality of death is a very strong element in them. When people are diagnosed with cancer, when people are in the final stages of addiction and they're facing death, you know, uh, a lot of the transformational effect is due to becoming aware of death. Um, so, you know, just, just simply contemplating death can be very important. I, I like to, you know, visit cemeteries, partly because they're so very peaceful, but also because, um, you know, you gain a direct awareness of death, of the reality of death, and that helps you to become aware of how precious, how fragile and how temporary life is. And it also puts you into a state of detachment because once you're strongly aware of death, then, you know, you have to detach yourself from the future and also in the past. So it's, it's very powerful. Thank you. Nicely, nicely, nice and concise. So your very last chapter is a sort of uh, forward-looking, hopeful uh, expression of... I guess, collective uh, transformation. So um, summarize that. Sum summarize what you have to say there, if you will, very briefly. It's about evolution. I've always um, been aware of the connection between spiritual awakening and evolution. 
And I think spiritual awakening is a kind of evolution. I think it is related to the the whole evolutionary process, which has taken place over the last, you know, few bi- million years. Because evolution is about, you know, on a, on an inner subjective level, evolution is about the expansion of awareness. It's about living beings becoming more conscious of their surroundings, more conscious of their own subjective life, more conscious of other living beings and so forth. So spiritual awakening, which is a, which is an expansion of awareness is related to that. It's a continuation of that process. So I think the fact that there are so many spiritual awakenings taking place in the world now is possibly a sign that evolution, an evolutionary shift is taking place. You know, so collectively, the human race is moving to a new level of consciousness. Yeah, that, that's a, um, a hopeful message. And I'm not, uh, I don't know one way or the other if that's, that's, that's the way it works or not. It's a, but it's a, um, I, I sometimes wonder if we can look at the world and see, it seems like people are getting less conscious. And in other cases, it seems like they're getting more conscious. Yeah, I think I both. Appreciate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's a, um, uh, a an interesting question. You know, like our, our, our because you, you suggest, you know, in, in some respects that um, it could be that there's always been a, lot, a number of people who have these experiences, but our society certainly doesn't have a way to talk about them. Hmm. And I think about India, you know, I was thinking as I was reading your book about, you know, how someone having that kind of experience in India, there's uh, often becomes a wandering sadhu or, or there's a lot of different places they can go for, because the culture had um, a greater sensitivity to that kind of uh, realm of functioning. Mm. And whereas uh, in Western uh, uh, societies until relatively recently, as you said, people would be considered sort of psychotic and, uh, be treated in some way that's right so so it's a but i do appreciate that in fact talking about this having the conversation gives access for people who've had these experiences to recognize something and recognize the naturalness of what they're uh, uh encountering yeah it, it is difficult in our kind of secular materialist society and a lot of people associate these experiences with religion and yeah. they see religion as the enemy, you know, the enemy of enlightenment. So they resist the experiences. I remember a few years ago, I gave a talk about spiritual experiences at a psychological group, a psychology group. And a woman came up to me at the end and said, um, oh, I'm really confused because I'm an atheist, but I've had this kind of experience. Is that possible? Can I be an atheist and have this experience? <laughs> I said, of course, you know. But, but people don't realize they, they just associate it with religion. Well, the other thing that's really interesting about, about your book um, is that, uh, or at least another thing that I really found interesting, is, is that one of the things you essentially uh, assert, um, without maybe saying it quite so, as explicitly as I will now, is that these awakenings, as they integrate, become integrated, as you put it, into people's lives, it actually leads to 
a higher levels of happiness and higher levels of functioning in ordinary life, even mm. even which is not the same as necessarily as understanding how ascetics function in the world. You know, in in a, in a society like India that Stuart was pointing to a moment ago, and I and I think I think that's a that's a um, it, it makes sense to me um, because when the um, dysfunctional habits of of the ego are are no longer directing one's uh, activities, then um, creativity um, that's a, that's that's the other part of higher functioning. It seems to me, as you point to mm. the creativity that that these people suddenly find available to them as they've had these these transformations. And that's um, that that's a feature that the book um, really um, illuminates. I think that's right. Yeah, and relationships is another one because people often say that their relationships become more authentic and more intimate. Um, strange enough, people sometimes say that they they have fewer friends, mm. but they have much deeper friendships than before. I think what happens is that, you know, kind of superficial relationships fade away, but much deeper relationships flourish in their place. And um, even, even people, you know, who do, um, you know, often people change jobs after this transformation because mm -hmm. they want to do something more altruistic than their previous role. They want to help other people. But sometimes people stay in the same jobs and they just focus on a different aspect of it. So people are no longer so concerned with, making a profit or, you know, doing, being successful in the role, but they really want to attend to other people. They want really want to help other people and give other people their full attention. And they often say that they become better at their jobs because they can understand other people better. They can empathize with other people and, um, yeah, they have much better relationships with their customers or colleagues. So it makes life much, much easier. Life becomes much more fulfilling and much more graceful and you know it, it is literally a, a much higher functioning self yeah and that higher functioning self um perhaps is a is it is itself then a foundation for even deeper mystical exploration of connection um as as yeah. uh, life goes on Definitely, yeah. I mean, I think that's one one of the fallacies that some people have about spiritual awakening that it, it is an endpoint. You know, you 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 get to enlightenment and that's it. You're there. You've attained your final goal. But in reality, it's not like that. It's it's like uh, the, we, let's go back to the landscape metaphor. It's just a there's no end to the landscape. It just keeps unfolding. You keep exploring it. Maybe you explore it more deeply, more richly, but you keep discovering new aspects of it. You keep discovering new terrains and new flora and fauna <laughs> and so forth but actually you know i mentioned before about the the guy interviewed in his 90s who'd been awakened for 60 years or more and he told me that even now he keeps discovering new aspects of it <laughs> you know and, the, and you know see he said that there's no end to this you know the more you're in it the more you discover that's very sweet it is sweet and and that's that's the one of the elements I think that 
comes through with the self-reporting of those of the folks in the and the stories that you tell is that there's this freshness of life that life life is ever fresh yeah it's as though it's like a uh on um an unending well of creativity of just uh and that creativity doesn't necessarily mean producing artifacts as much as just seeing things in constantly in new ways yeah life becomes an adventure and you know people trust in it as well people often you know they describe that somehow life is living through them you know they're not really living themselves they're just allowing something to flow through them and and they trust in that process and they allow it to carry them along just as if they're kind of swimming with with the river and you know they're never quite sure what's going to unfold but it's always interesting and you know they all they always trust in the process yeah and you know i want to uh go back because before the audio uh uh broke up there for a moment um when we were talking about the um the question of self and no self and the you know you you were speaking about kind of a critique of some of the non-dual uh languaging that basically tells people you know there's no one there you don't have to do anything uh in, in some sense just uh you're, you're nothing you're just a stream of experience and mm. and what i appreciate in in what you're describing um you know when we use terms like essence versus uh the um uh psychological self or the egoic self you are pointing to a qualitatively different experience of self and hmm. that it's not it's a self that is not constrained by boundaries in a way it's a, it, and it, and it ha- seems to have an intrinsic you know similarity to all selves and yet it still has an individuality there is still this locus of experience that seems to yeah. be available and it's not like it all goes away and the way the non-dual teachers t- talk about it it's not it's not exactly or at least some non yeah some teachers. it's not exactly uh i would say it's not incorrect but it sort of it misses this uh the profundity of this kind of intrinsic subjectivity that we share and yeah that's right it's um you know it, it's still you know i guess you could think of it in terms of psychological structures um, and there are so, still some psychological, psychological structures, and you couldn't function as a human being without some psychological structures. You still need to be able to focus your attention. Yeah. You still need to be able to learn from experiences. You know, you still need to interact with other people. And you need psychological structures in, in order to do that. You still need to form language and so forth. You still need to have some memories. And, you know, without that, as we said earlier, you, you become psychotic. But it's a complete, you know. But these these psychological, psychological structures are they're different in the sense that they don't create a separate identity. You know, there is an identity which is much more fluid and, and subtle, and and it you know it's not in duality to the rest of the world. You know, well, one metaphor I, I sometimes use is it's like a in in the in the norm in our normal human state, the ego is like a, a big city which is separated from the countryside and we're separated from the nature around mm-hmm. it. 
but in but after spiritual awakening the self is more like a kind of small eco village which is kind of integrated with its environment which kind of blends into its environment and you can't tell where one ends and the other begins it's so harmoniously integrated you know yeah i like that um there's a another there's a uh, metaphor that it comes out of the fourth way material um, that just speaks about how in, you know, the ordinary human functioning, egoic functioning state, uh, essence is passive and uh, the personality structure is active. So essentially essence mm. goes along for the ride and there's all these tidal forces of personality that are driving and conditioning our experience. And mm. in the awakened state, essence is active and the personality is now passive with respect to essence. That is it, it responds. Mm. And the way I think about this, yeah. And the way I think about that practically is there's a difference, you know, if we're, if we're speaking, there's a difference about thinking about what you're going to say before you say it versus having this feeling and the words just seem to follow along with the feeling. Yeah. And so I think about the, the nature of the self that you're describing, the, the, the structure of the self, is organizing in response to this intrinsic self as opposed to the intrinsic self is subject to the experiences mediated by a structure of the ego. Mm, that makes sense, yeah. That also fits with my observation that um, awakened people are actually very simple. You know, you, you speak to them and you feel that, you know, you're, get, you're getting their whole essence in the conversation or in their being. But when you speak to other people, there's a lot of complexity there. You can't really work them out. You don't really know what's going on. And, you know, you feel like there could be a whole range of different issues that they have that you need to work out before you can get in contact with their essence. But awakened people are just so simple. There's, there's really nothing there. You know, you can see straight through them, right into the heart of them. And that's because all of those personality structures are either absent or, you know, they're just not as powerful. But, you know, you can see straight through their essence well this has been a, a very uh, useful conversation for me and uh, uh, and I really appreciate uh, the getting the chance to read Extraordinary Awakenings and have, have this conversation with you Steve it's, uh, it's really been um, um, use, as I say helpful for me and useful to think about um, some of these distinctions that your work brings up. So I'm really glad you've been doing it. And um, um, I'm, I hope I'll get to, we'll get to have another conversation in future about a future book. Okay. Yeah. It's been um, very interesting, very interesting for me too. Yeah. So thank you very much. Oh, it would be great to uh, speak again at some point. Yeah. Well, the book Extraordinary Awakenings when trauma leads to transformations, just incredibly, yeah. incredibly rich, uh, human yep. testimony therein. And just released from New World Library. So uh, it's uh, on the shelves now. We uh, uh, <laughs> highly, highly encourage people to read it. I think it's some uh, really great work you're doing. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's uh, very kind of you. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks. We have a few minutes left for an afterword on this conversation. And I should mention that we're recording this afterward a couple of weeks after our conversation with Steve Taylor, so we've had some time to let it sink in. So my first question for you, Rob, is 
in the conversation we talked a lot about an, a certain model or a certain definition of awakening. And I'm interested in what you agree with and disagree with or how you might configure awakening similarly or differently from what Steve Taylor elaborated in his book. Well, it troubled me a little bit reading the book. I felt um, a little different as a result of the conversation that we had with uh, Mr. Taylor. But um, I was just reviewing uh, from the index the word spirituality, and it's um, he never actually defines precisely what he means by spirituality. But the first reference to the word spirituality in the index is on page 17, and there's actually more than one um, point being made on page 17. He's talking about the um, chapter Peace in the Midst of War. So there he's talking about uh, what he calls spiritual awakenings in the context of the life and activities of a soldier, and not just moments in battle, but also perhaps the lingering, often long lingering aftermath of those experiences and how they, um, he describes them in some cases as having changed the individual in a substantial way. So, um, um, so that in itself sort of defines what I think he means, Mr. Taylor means, by the um, word awakening, and that is a substantive and ongoing change. Now, he does, he does distinguish between a, a one-time shift and everything is different consistently thereafter versus um, years or even decades of of coming to terms with um, whatever the consequences of the um, awakening um, may be experienced as by the by the individual that, he, that, that he's talking about and um, honestly um, the the lack of a definition troubled me in, when I was reading the book so I pressed him on that point in our in our conversation a little bit and and he used a metaphor that I came to appreciate immediately, which was he talked about how different people experience awakening as suddenly emerging or maybe not suddenly emerging in a spiritual landscape and that there are different spiritual landscapes or if there's one great spiritual landscape then there are many um, if you will ecological niches um, spread over the geography and one might even say over the uh, temporal uh, the time-based um, period of uh, a, a part of their uh, these folks lives so so just so i get that you know what i recall from the metaphor is there's a landscape of spirituality or there's a landscape that's what he, that's of, what he asserted yeah, yeah a landscape of awakening if you will and right. there are different 
uh, mountain peaks, if you will, and uh, different uh, locations in this. Well, val- valleys, rivers, right. etc. And that this this is actually interesting in terms of the idea that all spiritual experiences ultimately are the same or draw draw from the same place and he acknowledges that and yet has this notion of this uh variation too which which i appreciated because i think sometimes the idea that every tradition is saying exactly the same thing is a little simplistic and that gives room for the individual experience of awakening and its uniqueness for each person yeah uh, also um the uh difficulty i had as i was mentioning earlier was that um in in reading the book it's it's almost understood that there are certain features of awakening that define every awakening experience no matter how short or long lived no matter how intense um etc and um and that failure to um, configure um, whatever uh, he means or I mean would mean by awakening um, can lead to, I think, as as you're pointing out, some confusion by listeners and or in this case readers. So um, so that was helpful to me this notion of uh, a variable landscape of awakening. And and to me, that was important. Yeah, one of the interesting things to me about uh, our conversation with Steve and, and the book is that, you know, he is works as a transpersonal psychologist, but his worldview is pretty broad in terms of not staking claims about um, you know, life after death or, uh, 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 psychic powers and psychic capabilities. In other words, he is open to all of that and doesn't, isn't, isn't doing a, um, a materialistic thing about trying to position awakening as a psychological state. So he, he had a very porous definition and yet he was applying scientific methodology to try to look at commonalities between people who had had these ex- unusual experiences where extreme trauma in life seem to result in a permanent state change for people. I'm not sure what you mean by scientific. Well, scientific yeah. means that he, he studied a number of different uh, individuals and then from that tried to identify some common elements, which is what where he comes up with this list of... Yeah, uh, I mean, if, if, yeah, but if we're going to get into the word science, science, or science and and... Uh, make the claim you just did that that he uses scientific methodology um, that would have inclined me to start asking about how he contacted the people whose stories he relates in the book whether it was um, a random sample oh, okay or something like that and and without that i'm 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 a okay, little so hesitant fine. to sign so, in, so, so, sign on to your definition of that as scientific well i would would you call it ethnographic in a sense uh, i mean he's i suppose it's closer to ethnog- ethnography but that 
but it but it's it would be ethnography of individuals, which generally would not be the way to use that word either. Okay. So, um, and and I don't think I'm hesitant to, to agree to the term scientific as well, because I don't think that the common uh, techniques of social science actually have much to say about um, the distinction between the horizontal and the vertical, which for a long time has been a very important way to help me understand what awakening uh, refers to and how and how the variability for different individuals presents itself. Okay. I, I guess it, what I found compelling about uh, the book Extraordinary Awakenings in reading it was there were a lot of stories about people. Oh, uh, and, uh, there, and, there's no doubt that that is very... Um, that's the feature of the book. He relates the stories well. Right. And, and so then at the end, he's trying to tie it together with some general statements uh, about that. And I think to your point about the horizontal domain versus the vertical do- domain and how it, we might map that into this, this book, it seemed like the fundamental transformation that he describes with different people is about how they relate to life rather than what the details of their life happens to be. And it's that how <clears throat> where there's a a change. And what I mean by that is, you know, in a ordinary human psychological condition, the how of our relationship to life is to treat things outside of ourselves as very important and to have strong preferences and strong avoidances and to measure ourselves in terms of factors that are outside of our interior experience and the vertical shift is into a a state where one is less concerned about what you know what happens in the outside there's more acceptance about what happens in the outside and one is uh complete within oneself no matter what is happening out there okay and that's why i use the word how for that because it's how we relate to the phenomenology of our lives that is a shift hold on relate the phenomenology of our lives what does that phrase mean the sensory experiences the so so the experience of our lives that's a big word to use okay well i like it (laughs) i know you do (laughs) but it just i'm not sure all listeners are going to go along with that or 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 find that helpful anyway i thought i would uh, mention the appendix that he offers in um his book extraordinary awakenings Mr. Taylor defines the characteristics of wakefulness, that's how he describes it, as as coming in four different aspects. So there's a perceptual aspect of wakefulness, and its characteristics, according to him, are intensified perception, increased ability to be present, awareness of, quote, capitalized presence, unquote, or spiritual energy, 
and then aliveness, harmony, and connectedness. So that's the perceptual aspect of wakefulness. The affective aspect of wakefulness includes interior quietness slash less, less identification with thoughts, transcendence of separation slash sense of connection, empathy and compassion, well-being, and absence of or decreased fear of death. So that's the affective. The conceptual slash cognitive um, aspect of wakefulness um, has the characteristics of lack of group identity. I think that's an interesting one. Wide perspective dash universal outlook, heightened sense of morality, appreciation and curiosity. And then the final aspect of wakefulness, the behavioral aspect, has the characteristics, he says, of altruism, enjoyment of inactivity slash ability to, quote, be, unquote, non-materialism. And this is something that, um, a point that he brings up in many of these uh, uh, biographies. Autonomy slash living more authentically. I'm not sure I would put those two together in the way that he does, that living more authentically means autonomy, except insofar as people are not slavishly following, I suppose, uh, That's uh, I the views of others. And then enhanced relationships is the final one under behavioral. So I'm not sure about that one either, because although... Um, Many of these people that he whose stories he describes seem to have improvement in being troubled in that area, um, and I think that's what he's referring to here. I'm not sure that that great Zen masters or or whatever um, spiritual teachers from different traditions would necessarily um, point to enhanced relationships as a as a necessary feature of wakefulness right but again i i don't think he is listing those those categories as absolutely necessarily having to be present but there there are common features that he's found and to the point we were making earlier about the landscape being varied that the relative uh, magnitude of any one of those factors may be different for different individuals, and uh-huh. so in that sense, I don't, I don't, I don't find that problematic. But also, he's he's speaking about awakening of individuals uh, in a who are people who weren't necessarily even engaged initially in a spiritual search. Oh, hold on, not, not I make a stronger statement than that. None, almost none of these right. people have that kind of background or context or sense of right. purpose but, or direction. Right, which is my point, is that they, they didn't, and they came, They had this strong experience, they may have later found a spiritual tradition of one sort or another that helped give them a context to understand their experience, but it, it was an ordinary individuals who were suddenly transformed by these intense experiences. Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, yes, and the point that's interesting there to me is that is that these are all, f- with one or two exceptions perhaps, 
they're all people who who had no who grew up for the most part um, as I say with maybe an exception or two with uh, with an essentially non-religious um, and what he would call non-spiritual background right and um, and so he's not talking about people here who um, undertake these um, who undertake to transform their lives is and to use his his word um, but rather these are these are folks who, having experienced some kind of trauma in one sense or another um, spontaneously as it were in in many cases have a certain experience and then and then go on from there whether it takes them years to integrate that or no sense of needing to work to integrate that into their life into their ongoing lives so it's a it's a it's a subset it's a very subset small subset one would think at least of uh so th- so these are secular people with secular lives who in almost all the cases he talks about, have what he calls, what he describes as no relationship to spirituality or knowledge thereof. And so, um, um, you know, that's quite a bit different than than how... um, And and, and I guess you could say that at this point in time, our Western cultures are, are... Framing things more and more in a secular uh, context, right? But but I think that 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 um, those case studies actually are interesting from the point of view that because these people did, that he refers to in the book didn't have a, a context within which to put their experiences, there is arguably a interesting kind of authenticity about the experience because they only after they had the experience that they come to in many cases not all cases come to find a context to hold it many people actually didn't i think he describes didn't even necessarily go that far and i distinguish that from people who have a strong experience a a spiritual like or awakening like experience who are in a uh, context or a group may, when they come back from that, put onto it conceptual categories that may or may not make it more clear or accessible. What and, kind of group are we talking about? Well, I'll give you two examples. So, let's say a person in a religious community that has a born again experience would put a certain kind of framing around. Uh, maybe uh, Jesus coming into my heart and things like that on the experience. Someone in a uh, Zen intensive Zen practice that has a satori would have a very different context, and yet some of the elements of those experiences might be similar, independent of the context that's mapped onto it subsequently. And and so. The, interesting thing about the people in this book is since they didn't have that kind of uh, 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 context in most cases their reporting of it is tends to be devoid of a interpretive language 
And that's what, what... I'm not sure that I agree with that. I think it is an interpretive language, a psychological interpretive language. Okay, well... And I think that, and I think to fail to acknowledge that um, does an injustice to comparisons, the kind of implicit comparison you're making with with people with a with a, sec, a non secular or religious or background. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to leave it uh, with that. So I'll let you have the uh, uh, last word on that point. And we'll let readers uh, and listeners judge for themselves by reading the book Extraordinary oh, I, Awakenings. Yes, and I, and I do encourage people to uh, read the book who are interested in, in the topical matter. And I, I like uh, Steve Taylor a lot, and I, I think he's doing um, work that he is well-suited to do. And uh, I think it's definitely something that those who are interested um, and feel or feel inclined we'll get something from hey well thank you for this afterward you have been listening to the mystical positivist this is your host Stuart goodnick this week on the show we featured a pre-recorded conversation with steve taylor author of extraordinary awakenings when trauma leads to transformation in this book steve shares dozens of amazing stories of individuals who woke up to profound transformation following bereavement deep depression suicide attempts addiction, military combat, imprisonment, and other intense encounters with mortality. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.